so sick of that nerd. I hate that creepy kid. I blow my freaking lid every time I see him. I hate those stupid freaks. Each one of them just reeks. I've got to crush them. Kill the nerds. Yeah, kill them all. Their stringy bodies crowd the hall. Kill the nerds. Kill the nerds. Welcome to Sound Like a Pop series, Making a Musical. A while back, I sat down with the creators of a new musical entitled Invisible, the Musical. In our limited series, we interviewed the creators David Hollingsworth and David Orris about their journey from concept to the stage. Two years have passed. We decided it was time to check in. Kill the nerds. They smell like eggs. Let's shave their heads and break their legs. Kill the nerds. They run like chicks. Let's make them pay. Let's throw some bricks. Kill the nerds. Kill the nerds. On this episode, I will be talking to two more of the actors who have been with Invisible from the beginning until now. Jordan Goodsell, who plays the antagonist Chetwick, and Dan Ammerman, who plays the sidekick slash comic relief Kemper. Um, good evening. We are talking to Jordan Goodsell, one of the stars of Invisible, and also on the line is David Orris, the one of the creators and the composer for the musical Invisible that we've been talking to all week. Jordan, how have you been? Oh, I have been so well. I am uh, just so excited to still be a part of this project. I'm just elated to be here. <laughs> we talked to you about two years ago, uh, right before they were going to do the um, last stage reading with 3D theatricals. Is that correct, David Orris? That is correct. So it's been two years. Um, can you remind everybody a little bit about the role that you're playing? Uh, yeah, Chetwick is the, um, as the script says it, the far too well-off jock of Springboro High. Uh, he is the king of the school. He's the basketball star. He has everything he wants in life for a high school kid, at least. Popularity, fame uh, amongst his peers, wealth. Um, and uh, yeah, that's Chetwick. Well, um, I don't know if everyone remembers the last time we talked, but the Davids and myself tend to gush a little bit about Jordan as he steps onto the stage and hits this note that if he's standing in Anaheim, you could probably hear it in Paris. So Jordan has this epic <laughs> role of Chetwick with this epic song that introduces him to the play. Jordan, you've been involved with this, like you said, since the beginning. Can you tell us why you've stuck with it all this time? Um, I, I really just think there I, there are so many reasons, but it is just not only is it an amazing show, but it is just such an amazing environment to work in. First thing, I mean, this role is absolutely wonderful. I think that goes without saying, but also just like the Davids, I, I just so admire them and I admire their tenacity and, and how this this uh this show has really developed i mean i'm really really excited to do this upcoming reading of it because um the 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 
script has quite changed without saying anything but i mean it's it's just adjusted to it's just amazing because they're working to make it so much better and it's just an amazing project to be a part of and just a a wonderful um show and a great role to to do to tackle to be able to add (laughs) david orris i think that we had spoken about this before but can you remind us or or tell us in your own words what it was about jordan when he first auditioned that you knew you had your chetwick um everything about jordan i think was right there from the very beginning uh i mean you the dude has an insane work ethic and we we instantly responded to him in that way but it it was more than that he brings like a level of um as as you just heard like a tidbit of he uh you know, he brings a lot of insight to character. Um, he's incredibly talented. He's an incredible voice. He's perfect for the role. Um, but I, I think I might have even talked about this last time, but I remember when he first auditioned for us in person, he, he just made some like really incredible choices. Like he was in it from step one. And that's how Jordan works. I have learned he doesn't. He doesn't drop a note. He doesn't miss a beat. He shows up ready and he shows up with the character um, as much as as much as we give him. And he I, I know I said this before. He's picking up everything we're throwing down on the page. And um, and he's a delight to work with. He's he's a genuinely lovely human being on top of all of that. So we thought immediately we'd have him place a sort of scoundrel. <laughs> Jordan, um, as we've talked to all of your castmates throughout the year, it's gotten increasingly annoying how much everyone loves you. So do you, as a, you're coming to this role as you're playing kind of a villain and you're trying to find the humanity in it. And David Hollingsworth made a great point in our previous interview where he's saying no one is, no one who is a villain, no one's the villain of their own story, even if they are. So, Chetwick kind of comes off as this guy, but he manages to find some humanity. So when you're thinking about Chetwick, like how are you trying to make him human and relatable, even though he's coming off as kind of a bad guy at first? I mean, I think, I think he, uh, it's, it's a, it's a mask of insecurity. I think it's a, it's a, uh, high school, somebody who, a person who is trying, who's just on this journey of self-discovery of who he is. I mean, uh, he certainly is, has the good looks, the, the status he's got and, and, and acknowledgement from his peers through that as well. And he knows it. So he, he owns it. Um, but I, I think it's just the, the reality of, of, of what's underneath all of that, which is gr- greatly in the text. I mean, it's all in the text through the writing a mask of insecurity is a great way to describe it. Um, do you have a favorite song that you perform in the show? Um, <laughs> probably no one but me, because uh, it's just so um, the uh, extremes of that of him, uh, of <laughs> Chetwick, uh, just going through his highs and lows of. Well, he's it's just a mental battle it's a brilliant mental battle of of himself <laughs> david oris is there i guess i don't have to say your last name since hollingsworth isn't on the line david um is there a favorite <laughs> song you like to watch jordan perform 
I mean, we've definitely loved watching him sing No One But Me uh, over the past couple of years. But um, I'm actually, there's, we've put it in the, we've put it in the show as a quote unquote new number. It's really kind of an extension of No One But Me. There's a new number in the show called You Don't Have To that I'm particularly excited to uh, to hear him and, and Luke do together without saying too much. But I mean, you know. Well, oh, so what are we what are we spoiling or reading that no one's gonna see so. <laughs> <laughs> that's true um so this will be a brand new song yep man you're so prolific um okay that's so you crazy. have this upcoming date in uh 54 below jordan what are your thoughts about going to new york with this oh i'm excited i'm excited to work with mark i'm excited for invisible to go to new york i think it belongs in new york so I'm just excited to be there with it. It's uh, it's the city it, it needs to be in and it deserves to be in. I mean, the Davids have worked so hard uh, and I'm just so excited for the show to be there. Where have you pulled um, some of your inspiration for this character from? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, inspiration? Uh, boy, um... You know, I just remember when, like, in the very beginning, when David sent me a message through backstage and told me to kind of look at the show and and all of that. I know we said this on the previous uh, podcast episode that I did, Um, but uh, I kind of just found the inspiration through the description. I was just like, oh, it's a it's a basketball jock. I played basketball in high school, so and and uh, he's a tenor, and I'm like, I'm a tenor. This is kind of a rare combination of things together because I don't know. I, I kind of feel like jocks are written usually for for bases or like a sports sports um, characters are written for bases. But yeah, I, I kind of just uh, found the inspiration through what I already do and who I am. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I never really thought about that. Um, Oris, did you uh, was that a conscious decision to make the jock a tenor? It was. Um, it was kind of part and parcel of the uh, 80s-ness of what we were going for, too. You know, uh, Invisible is set in 1988, and um, everything, as you know from having seen the readings and stuff, has uh, 80s tropes and nods and things. And so my sort of musical idea was that, uh, I mean, most the, the music is very rock-leaning um, in general, pop-rock-leaning, which generally lends itself to tenor ranges um, with men. But also I thought there was an obnoxiousness in a lot of the 80s hairband rock. So in terms of the score, I was leaning into things like Guns N' Roses and Warrant and things like that. Not overtly, but there are hints of it throughout the score. And uh, so I thought it was interesting to follow suit with that because I thought, what's what's more menacing than like Twisted Sister? That's really interesting. We never talked about that before. Um, okay, so we keep telling everyone that Jordan's a wonderful person and he's really talented and he's really nice. So when he becomes a big star in a few years, um, we're going to say that we knew you when. So can you tell us some of the things, Jordan, that you're working on besides Invisible? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I just recently, two and a half weeks ago, moved to New York City. So that was kind of a huge transition and, and life change for me. And I even planned on moving to New York City before 
I knew Invisible was going to 54 below. So it, it just kind of um, coincided with my big uh, life transition <laughs> that Invisible is going to happen while I'm there, which obviously makes it easier for me to do it, but also just really exciting because it's my first performance in, in New York City is going to be this role. And so uh, it's just so special to me already. And to have that as a first performance in New York City is really, really cool. Um, so that, that's that's uh, kind of new with me. Um, I'm just really excited to uh, be pursuing my passion and following my dream, something I've always wanted to do. Are you a native Californian? I am born and raised in Orange County, your Belinda, California. Man, I've just never I've met so few of you, you people, these native Californians. I just everyone's an implant, myself <laughs> included. So we used to we like to wrap these things up um, with a little bit of a love fest. So, Jordan, I would like you to tell me if you could what your favorite thing has been about working with David Orris and David Hollingsworth throughout this whole process. Oh my goodness. Um, David Orris is one of the most incredible human beings I think I've ever come across in my life because of how much um, appreciation and genuine support uh, he, uh, in my life that he has been at least since we have, uh, met and worked together. Um, I can truly say there's nobody like him and there's, um, uh, his constant just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Acknowledgement and, um, assurance that it just in, in my, self overall as an actor and a human being and and just just to have that come from like your writer is is very um of a show that you're you're doing obviously and he's in the room uh, is just very just special i mean so i think david orris is just and i'm proud to call him one of my friends just because he has been such a excellent human being and he is such an excellent human being um, so I think just being in the presence of him alone and, and, and continuing to have us connected through this show that he has written, um, is a blessing in my life. And David Hollingsworth too, um, is he's These guys are just so magnificent and, he, and David is, um, they're just such nice, genuine human beings. And David's such a great guy. Uh, as well, I've just enjoyed getting to know him and I, there's this one memory in particular. I don't know. It's so many great discoveries that we have in rehearsal. Um, every time we do this, but when David, I, I think one of the highest uh, achievements in my life was making David Hollingsworth fall out of his chair over something that I did in rehearsal with <laughs> Simon. Um, it was like during kill the nerds and it was a moment. And where I like touched the back of Luke's head, graced it and and then looked away. It was just like a foreshadowing moment that it wasn't written in the script. But David Hollingsworth literally fell out of his chair laughing so hard. And that is a memory I'll probably never forget because I was like, wow, we did it. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that was so cool. So, yeah. <laughs> well, then I like to throw it to David because I have found that either with Oris or Hollingsworth, after I make people gush about them, they're usually crying. So I will throw it to you, David Oris, and please tell me what you like about working with Jordan Goodsell. Oh, my goodness. Jennifer McHugh, you're doing it to me again. Um, 
<laughs> and you too, Jordan. Thank you for all the incredibly kind words. Um, Jordan is, I, I mean, we, we've, we've said it to death. Jordan Goodsell is a delight to work with on pretty much every level. Um, he is superlatively talented. I think the thing about Chetwick is, uh, and what we're writing now is that he is, yes, he is, he is a little thick, but, but uh, as you were kind of alluding to with what David Hollingsworth said, you know, no one is the villain of their own story. And, um, there's, there's value inside all of us. And, and I think Chetwick is actually very, very layered. And I think the funny thing about a character like Chetwick, who is so out of touch with who he is and, uh, is so kind of really kind of marginalized in a strange way and kind of shoved into this role of the, being this one thing that it turns out maybe he is, maybe he's not, but he's definitely 10 other things. And it takes an incredibly intelligent actor to play a role like that. Um, and believe me when I tell you, we've you know, seen a lot of people <laughs> try to do Chatwick. It's probably the hardest role in the show to play in many ways. And, Ch and Jordan makes it look like it's, you know, taking a nice breezy walk. Um, he's open. He's game for hearing any ideas and comments. As, as you heard in his example just now, he brings all kinds of creativity to the table. Um, also being respectful and a generous actor and a generous artist. Um, he's just truly a great guy and the guy gushes gratitude and, uh, just really you, he's the, he's the kind of actor you want to work with for a very long time, as long as you can hang on to him. So, um, and, and I also definitely count him a friend and, uh, feel lucky to do so. Jordan, do you get tired of all these compliments? <laughs> oh, um, tired. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't exhaust me, um, but it's just very um, humbling, I should say. And I'm very grateful. Well, everyone genuinely raves about you. And I hope that you continue with that through your whole career, because there's one thing I've heard from directors near and far is that they always hire the nice people. So... Um, one last question. What are your hopes that for you to see in the future with, with invisible? Oh my gosh. I hope this goes to Broadway. <laughs> I mean, I know, uh, you know, I just hope that invisible has the most fulfilled life that it can have. And, 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 um, what I'm happy about is, is that it, it seems to be fulfilling its full potential and doing the best it can. Um, and so I just think that there, there could be no limits for, for invisible, for it to reach the highest heights. Um, but either way, I mean, it's just, um, it's an honor to be a part of whenever, it, whenever it happens. And, and I hope I can always be a part of it for as long as it can. And as long as I don't age out of Chetwick, <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, that's where we gotta, we gotta act now. We gotta keep going. We gotta keep going further. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i'm just uh really excited for that it's it's going to new york and that's only that's the that's a good thing that's the city to be in for any musical <laughs> kind of useful being invisible. 
It's more than that. Do you hear them chanting? Everyone's looking at you. The nerd who just staged his first coup. Dude, we can use this. We'll pass that fully. You can make me look like I'm tougher. Dickwads are going to suffer. That's it, Griff. This is how we beat Chetlick at his own game? We just use your invisibility to make me popular. And then once we find a cure for you, I'll just bring you up to my level. You being invisible isn't a disaster. It's not even a problem. It's the solution. Oh my god. Okay, we are back once again talking to another talented actor from the Invisible cast. This time it's Dan Ammerman. Hi, Dan. Hi, how's it going? And David Orris, our lovable composer, has joined us once again. Hello. Dan plays the role of Kemper. Now, Dan, we talked to you on the last series we did. Could you just remind everybody who Kemper is? Yeah, sure. So uh, Kemper is the best friend of main character Griff. And uh, basically, he's kind of a lovable goofball type guy who really wants to be popular, really wants to be liked at his school. But he's kind of willing to go to almost maniacal levels of commitment to that quest uh, in order to achieve his goal. So whereas uh, Griff might be a little bit more um, sort of tempered, Kemper is less tempered. That's a good actor right there. That was very, very well done. Yeah. I also write most of the lyrics. Uh, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> um, I think we just kind of got a glimpse of it. But David Orris, can you tell us what it was that you saw in Mr. Ammerman that drew you to him? Uh, Dan Emmerman is a particular, particularly intelligent actor. He's, um, he just, there, there's a sharpness to what he does that I think is perfectly Kemper. Um, as with everyone we've had the, really the luxury of working with, um, he's, he's really great for the part, but he's, he's very, he's a very smart actor, terrific voice, terrific look for the part, um, and he, he comes more than prepared. He's he's really good on his feet. I remember uh, we did a reading in was it 2017, and uh, I think we got through. We, we had kind of a music director uh, crisis, and we I think we had a brand new one on the day of performance. And there were at least two or three moments in the performance. There's some really complex music, and uh, there were at least two or three moments where, like Dan Ammerman, single-handedly, like saved it and was like, I'm entering, everybody follow, now I'm singing. And um, he's, he's really fast on his feet. He makes really interesting choices, and um, w- which is really important for Kemper. He's also just really likable, which I think is also really important for Kemper because Kemper has to get away with sort of doing a lot of bad shit during the show, and then we have to kind of forgive him. So uh, it, it helps that Dan is a deeply good guy, and that comes across. That's a good point. Dan, um, can you talk a little bit about Kemp, uh, about Kemper's arc in this show, going from good to bad to good? Sure. So That's a really the, simplistic way to put it, but oh, maybe you could be more eloquent. You pretty much nailed it. Um, he starts at the beginning being just kind of uh, 
a nerd, a little bit of an outcast, um, but in kind of a, you know, a, a beloved kind of cool way. Like he likes comics, he likes Star Wars and Star Trek and, and all those things that are like, he's like a Comic-Con kid. He's just like a normal uh, kid that's not a jock, like explicitly not jockey. Um, but then at a certain point, he starts thinking that if he becomes kind of jockey and if he becomes more stereotypically popular, then he might um, feel better about uh, himself and his prospects and uh, get girls. He's like very girl obsessed. And he thinks that if he can achieve this new look and this new vibe, then he's going to get all of these things. So he concocts, along with his best friend, a plan to make him into this popular guy. And then when he starts achieving some of that popularity, it goes to his head almost instantly. <laughs> like he, he's like, Oh, I'm popular. Great. Now I'm a monster. <laughs> like there's no, there's like no chance for him to, <laughs> uh, and then, but then in the middle of his monstrosity and of, of, you know, his transformation, he kind of realizes like, Oh, I've, I've started losing my friends, like my old friends, the ones who are kind of the ride or dies, like the ones who are with me the whole way. Um, for these people who just showed up now that I'm like popular and more accepted. Uh, and so he starts realizing like the things that he's lost, um, were maybe more valuable than this, this new popularity. Uh, and so he learns a lesson about himself. And then when he returns to being kind of the old Kemper, hopefully he's also learned some, some new things about his values along the way. It's a very camp by me love vibe. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Is that, I don't really know. Can't oh, God, I was hoping you were old enough to get that reference. David Orris, help me out. Can't Buy Me Love, that's like a Beatles song. So oh, God, <laughs> you're so young. <laughs> I totally <sighs> remember Can't Buy Me Love, but I'm, I'm, I still am me. Time, so I'm having a hard okay. time drawing the, uh, the plot to mind. Everybody Google Can't Buy Me Love, watch the movie, it's great. But Kemper reminds me a lot of the main character in that. So where do you pull inspiration from to go through that kind of an arc? Um, well, I think that the the first part of it's probably easier and more relatable than the, the middle part, just because like everyone has felt outcasted at some point. Everyone is like, wanted to be in that friend group and they can't quite figure out how to be accepted or so like I get what that's like to kind of have my little group of friends but always wanting to you know be be liked you know that feeling the the thing that I have less experience with is like taking a potion and becoming popular all of a sudden <laughs> something like that so and what I normally uh think about for that is really just noticing how everyone is treating me differently so since all of the other people on stage are now looking at me, like the whole beginning of the show, they're ignoring me. But then the middle, but then in the middle section, they start like fawning over me and all of the like the, the popular girls are like dancing around me and they all love me and think I'm great. And so I try to just soak that in and just really enjoy that attention and just be like, wow, I'm getting all this attention. Um, the way that like, uh, the way that you like wouldn't want an actor to be like in a show if they were like all about the attention. It, it's the chance for this character to basically just be like, like I'm on stage and I'm loving it, like that kind of feeling. And I can just, you know, it's just a chance to get to enjoy a little almost arrogant moment. And then at the end, hopefully then like my sense of my own personal like values of valuing friendship over, you know, the power or whatever will makes it easier to then at the end be like, you know, just say what say what I think the right choice is. 
Now, you are one of the actors that have been with them through the whole process. Um, what has made you stick around this long to be a part of this? Well, I've become friends with them. <laughs> so when they ask me to show up, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, and it's a really good show, and it's really fun, and the, the role is really fun. The music is the type of stuff that has been stuck in my head now for a few years since I started learning it. And it's always fun to see how something develops um, over time and see how the, the songs change and the story changes and all of that. But, like, you know, I, I didn't know David uh either David's, but I didn't know David Orris, um, before this process. And now we'll like, you know, grab dinner and just like do, you know, see each other socially and just catch up, uh, and talk about stuff that's not invisible to musical. Um, and so that's been a real treat. And so whenever they have something uh, that I can help them with, I'm, I'm happy to do it. You guys are all adorable. As I was telling, I was just talking to Christy prior to you, and I was warning her that the whole week of interviews has just been a giant love fest. So it's just really endearing to hear you all talk about each other. Um, I would say besides yourself, uh, what's one of your favorite characters to watch? That's a good question. I really, I mean, I like I think everyone's probably going to say, uh, and I'm, I'm such a sucker for like a true tenor, like a true real rock tenor and Griff's, Griff's songs all go up so high that it, it's so fun to just like get to have a front row seat to just watch him like wail his face off. Uh, and so I, I, I like that for my own, own personal kind of like, you know, tenor crush reasons. Uh, but I'd say that if I had to guess what everyone's going to say, <laughs> it would be Chetwick. I think not everybody said Chetwick, but everybody definitely oh. said Jordan. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, David Orris, if you could think, um, is there a particular moment in the show or in this whole run um, that Dan does that you never miss because of the way he does it. And it just tickles you every single time. I mean, uh, one of his big numbers, if I were invisible is always great. And I think kind of what I was saying before about Dan having a really like on top of being just a really stellar, smart actor, having this really likable quality while he sings this song, because, while Griff is sort of a more status-minded nerd, and he wants, you know, approval and praise and to make the world better for nerds, Kemper is more of a sex-minded nerd, and that whole number is kind of, in some way or another, all the pervy shit that he would do if he were invisible. And um it's really funny and winning, and Dan makes so many interesting choices during that number. I mean, I think anytime he's on stage, it's, it's honestly pretty incredible. But, uh, that, that moment in particular, I always really enjoy. And, and the 20 different drafts we have thrown at him of that song. <laughs> um, that's a good point. Uh, Dan, you've just proven to me how young you are, but these six grazed, uh, kind of comedic characters were very popular in eighties movies and eighties culture. Were there any in particular that you sought out or related to, or think about when you're playing Kemper? 
Hmm. Well, um, let me think. That's a good question. You know, there's something to this show because it is a little self-aware of its 80s movie history. Like, there's definitely um, musical call-outs to 80s movies and jokes about pop culture from that time. So I, I think there's something kind of archetypal about the characters um, where, you know, we've seen tons of movies over the years about two nerd. It's like super bad. You know, I know you just asked me for something about the 80s and I immediately went to like a millennial reference. But it, it's those these are archetypes that have been around forever. You know, it, dating back to Laurel and Hardy, you know, if you really want an, an adult <laughs> reference. Uh, but basically, like you have two friends who are just outcasts and they're, they kind of don't. They don't get what makes them silly and foolish. And um, so, yeah, I, I think I more think of that archetype than any particular one. But I guess, you know, probably if like Pretty in Pink, uh, there's the character. What is that guy's name? It's played by uh, John Cryer. Steph. Ducky. Ducky. That Ducky. Yes, yes, yes. Ducky. So hey, I, I, went, I went right to the villain. <laughs> You are to the villain. No, yeah. So I, I, I think of Ducky a little bit, uh, just because he's a goofball, but he's also kind of like a little bit of a cocky goofball. He's not like a Michael Sarah archetype. Um, but yeah, but I, I think the, those, those characters show up again over and over in, in stories just because, you know, they're so relatable. I do love that you gave me a millennial reference. That's very funny. Don't forget about the Laurel and Hardy that I <laughs> Yeah, I know. That totally You're balanced it out. Yeah. No, you, you totally <laughs> redeemed yourself. Um, <laughs> if you look back at high school, could you see yourself in any of these characters? Um, I think that I definitely was not. I mean, I was doing theater and stuff in high school, so I would. I wouldn't say that I was like um, a jock or like I, I've always liked sports, but I, I've never been part of kind of like the jock crew. But I, I felt like I was someone who wasn't I would kind of uh, I had friends in different groups, um, but I wouldn't say that I was like uh, securely in any of them. I kind of would bounce around to a lot of the different groups. So it's a little different than the way that like Griffin Kemper really sticks themselves in their little trio. Um, I kind of think that maybe I'm, I was a little bit more like what Griff is at the end of the show where you get a sense that like, Oh, he might be able to be more fluidly between the, the different um, social cliques and that everything's going to kind of be okay. Cause overall, like I had a pretty good, I had an enjoyable, high school experience, but it was largely because I met so many people doing plays and doing theater stuff that I, I had that kind of community. But yeah, I say maybe like, uh, and like, and you know, finale Griff. What are your thoughts about performing this finally in New York? Oh, it'd be fun. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey and spent a lot of time in New York. Uh, so I, every time I get, I live in LA now, but every time I get to go back there to do something, uh, it's always such a treat. Um, and I know that the Davids have, you know, in, in their process of working on this show, have wanted to um, get it over to New York. And it's the 
greatest theater city in the world and, and have more people see it and in that area. And, um, so I think it'll be really fun to just get to do it at a, at a space that, you know, I've, uh, I've heard of <laughs> before and it, that's always very exciting to be like, Ooh, I get to do something there. It's something I've seen other people like, uh, sing on YouTube, uh, videos before. And now I get to do that. So that like, that'll be really fun. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it, it's fun to feel, especially if someone who's an actor in LA, um, there is something of a divide between like the New York scene and the LA scene, even though some people kind of go back and forth. So it'll be fun to kind of take a little trip into being a part of the, the New York theater scene, uh, for a week, since that's not what my normal, uh, actor life it looks like. Um, but I love that scene as a viewer and I've always wanted to, you know, do more with it. So it'd be really fun to get to do that for a week. Where are you from in New Jersey? Cherry Hill, right outside of Philly in South Jersey. Nice. I'm from the Poconos. Mm-hmm. Ah, very nice. Awesome. So you've never performed in New York. Um, how long have you been in L.A.? Uh, I moved out after college. So I've been in L.A. like eight and a half years. And how did you find out about Invisible? Was it an audition notice or? Uh, David actually just reached out to me. Um, I think it was somewhat a mix between like, a referral like I because I remember he had heard about me from maybe a mutual friend or something like that who had either been I don't know like they were looking for like a young they basically David was looking for someone who looked young but also could sing and act and do all that stuff um but without having to actually cast someone super super young and I looked pretty young and so um he I think looked up my website and I had clips of myself on there so he kind of became aware of me and then when they were doing these earlier readings of it, um, they, I just kept not being like available. I kept being out of town or I just couldn't, couldn't do these like early workshops. And then he saw me in a play. Uh, I was doing uh, a musical in the LA fringe and he saw it not knowing that I was in it because uh, he knew the book writer or the music writer. And, um, he came up to me after the show and was like, Hey, I'm that guy that's been like emailing you for three years to <laughs> be in my musical. Uh, and then we, Ultimately we just, harassing you. yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, I'm your harasser. Uh, <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, cool. But he was nice. So then we just kept talking and then, uh, and then I was able to do the next reading and then we just kept doing it since then. And what was it about the script that you were just like, yeah, I definitely want to be a part of this. Well, I like things that are funny, but also kind of like make you think about um, emotional topics. Like I like things that are just straight slapstick comedy too and farcical things, but I really like things that um, have a have a deeper kind of emotional punch to it. And I think that's what was so special about so many of the movies from the 80s that people love that this musical references all the John Hughes stuff um, because it is so much about teenage um, not melodrama but like the emotions that feel like melodrama to a teenager so like everything is so heightened and um, you feel like like if, if I don't belong now I'm never going to belong or uh, it, everything is really high stakes and to do that with also having comedy is just really fun. So it felt like it was something that was uh, funny, 
the songs are super fun. And like I said, I love a strong power tenor. So it's great to be able to stand next to one for most of the show. And, uh, and also it just is one of those shows that like, you just, it, it's very sweet. So by the end of it, you just feel like, wow, like everything's going to be okay. And I just, I love those kind of feelings. Well, the way we've been wrapping these up is we'd like to ask you what your favorite things are about David Orris and David Hollingsworth. Mm, okay. Favorite things about those guys. Um, well, I'd say that uh, <laughs> David Orris, um, David Orris I want to say something other people haven't said because I, it's funny because when imagining other people having already talked to you, I'm going to imagine, I'm imagining that people will have mentioned that he writes like really long emails, um, that he is in, very persistent in being in touch, <laughs> stuff like that. I'm going to say, I'm going to say something else. I would say that David is, uh, he's a, he's a man of, of great wisdom and peace. And I, I think that, um, something not everyone knows about David is that David is a very avid, um, seeker of knowledge through meditation and, uh, and through like silent retreats and, and nature. And, and I think that is a fascinating, uh, counterbalance to someone pursuing, um, a career in the entertainment industry. Cause it, it, that's just so, uh, it's so often it's about trying to make something that, uh, is just going to become some big smash and it's not always about exploring the the different parts of yourself and and what you're thinking about and your emotions and and I find that I find that David Orris is very thoughtful and introspective um and it makes for really great conversations uh in between rehearsals and in between projects um and then Hollingsworth I would say that Hollingsworth does this thing when we're in when we're doing a show where like Hollingsworth would be really interesting on a film set because if, if you were doing a take and you did something funny, he would burst out laughing and just ruin every take. Uh, because he, especially <laughs> it was, it, it's worse because it's like his jokes. So he's like seeing his jokes performed and he's just like, yes, he gets it. Like, so he feels he's just such a good audience member for his own material that it's so funny and endearing and you feel connected to him through like your shared enthusiasm over the the jokes and so like I loved being in rehearsals where there were like two people sitting in the auditorium and you would just hear him cracking up uh it, it, it kept the energy up and it keeps you alive when there's not an audience to kind of give you that buzz David Orris I did not know that about you so that's fascinating and now I would like you to tell me your favorite thing about Dan Ammerman. <laughs> well, I really appreciate everything you just said, Dan. Um, every time Jen tees up that question, I kind of cringe a little bit and quietly go, don't talk about me. <laughs> and then by the end of it, and then by the end of it, I'm sort of like tearing up because you guys are all so damn sweet. Um, as you could hear from uh, talking to Dan, he's, he's an incredibly thoughtful guy. And I think uh, it, I mean, there are a lot of things to like about Dan Ammerman, but he, he's an incredibly thoughtful, insightful person. And, um, we, we do have that shared interest in, uh, meditation and, um, 
uh, anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent about that, but, um, Dan's just an incredibly thoughtful, insightful person, and I think he looks at life and humanity and therefore his art, um, through a very specific lens that I actually really connect with on a very personal level. And, um, and I think just makes him interesting and just pretty much anything he does as an actor, to be honest, not, not to sound, uh, overly fatuous about it, but I, I mean, I, I really mean it. And, uh, I just appreciate who he is as a human being, which I think deeply informs who he is as an artist, which is a really incredible artist. Um, we're just lucky to be able to work with him. Levels look just right. Griff's vital signs are strong. He'll be perfect by tonight. The nerd that I was. Thank you once again for listening to Some Like It Pops series, Making a Musical. Invisible the Musical will be performing at 54 Below in New York on September 2nd at 9.45 p.m. Tickets are available on the website 54below.com. Follow at invisible underscore show for all the latest updates. You can also find us on Twitter at SLIP podcast for the latest news on our upcoming episodes. And you can find Matt at BWW Matt and myself at Eponine Q. The nerd that I once was is disappearing. The force is with me. My destiny is near.